Hello out there in podcast land, this is Stream Police, where we'll tell you what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly on Netflix. I'm John Otney. Joining me, as always, is Mr. Michael Seveny. How are you doing, Michael? It's doing awesome. Stream Police is, of course, a podcast where we take films randomly selected through the Netflix randomizer and review them. Last week, we reviewed the 1995 angel thriller, The Prophecy, which Michael and I split on. At the end of the episode, we talked about reviewing a film that I originally planned to write about on MildlyPleased.com for a feature called Shocktober. Shocktober is where we do uh, 31 days with 31 horror movie reviews. This year's theme was the 1970s, and that means we will be reviewing the 1975 Canadian horror film Shivers, mm-hmm. which, if I'm not mistaken, is the feature-length debut from body horror auteur David Cronenberg. Before we do that, Michael and I thought it might be fun to open the garage, grab our 12-sided die, and talk about Weezer's latest album, Everything Will Be Alright in the End. Uh, now, but even before we did our last episode, Michael, you'd already heard Weezer's latest, and uh, what was your reaction? Just finish the album, how do you feel? Uh, relief, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, relief that, it, uh, that Back to the Shack is by far the worst song on it, and that... <laughs> um, and that overall, it's I thought, wow, that was a good Weezer album, which um, I don't always get to say when they come out with a new one. And I listened to it for the first time just a few days ago, and I was nervous from like the the get go because it opens with you know some some TV noise and some some audio, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is too experimental. I just want rock rock and roll. <laughs> but as that song starts, ain't got nobody. I liked the song. I, I really did. And I liked a lot of songs on here. And I think um, one of my worries early on that it was going to be inconsistent. And there probably is a couple songs where every once in a while there's like a sound that I hear that's like, oh, that's not like old Weezer. But <laughs> for the most part, I think it, it all works pretty well. And I had a good time. I Yeah, aside from Back to the Shack, I can't really think of any moments in particular where I was like, why did they have to make this? <laughs> I mean, there was that weird kind of semi-instrumental three-part the future thing at the trilogy. end. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How did yeah. you feel about that? You know, I think it was uh, over the top, but I, I think they kind of, uh, it, I, I would say gleefully over the top. Like, they were... Like Return to Ithaca has those that <laughs> you know very face melty like it, it's it's prog but it's prog with a wink you know like it knows that it's not really that but I, I mean I, I get what you're saying that's kind of you don't know how you feel about a Weezer album ending <laughs> with that kind of thing but um, but I mean I enjoyed it and I actually uh, Anonymous the second one that starts out with the piano and all right. that I, I actually really liked that and I would you know. I would kind of even like a whole song of that, but um, yeah, I uh, I would probably put that uh, on the lower half of uh, the album for me, but I dug it. I dug Was it. there a song in particular that stood out as one of your favorites? Yeah, I really liked "Go Away," um, and that was one. I'm not a huge Best Coast fan, but I like her voice and. Uh, I was kind of wondering how that would uh, work with uh, her and Rivers doing a duet, and um, it kind of it brought back some vibes of uh, back in the day when Weezer would um, utilize female vocalists, like in uh, some of the songs from the Black Hole Cuts, and I, I just threw out the Love of My Dreams, which is a great Pinkerton era B side. Um, 
not on that level but uh just like a really sweet kind of like 50s pop kind of melody and um i love the bridge uh i think they both really nailed that it's just it's just a really nice melody the kind that uh rivers used to just kind of churn out all the time and um so that one i dug a lot and i've had it up to here is another one i liked and that's co-written by the guy from the darkness and it's just i didn't even realize that (laughs) yeah like i it kind of makes sense like doesn't it kind of have that you know oh yeah no i get it (laughs) (laughs) yeah um which yeah i i i dug that one a lot like his his vocals on that and the um when it turns into (laughs) briefly like a reggae (laughs) guitar line with the uh you know little i don't know i i liked it it's kind of dynamic and interesting for uh, Weezer to be doing at this point. I don't know. And Cleopatra we've already talked about, but I really dig that song, and I've actually grown to like it even more now. I mean, I tend to go towards the most simple, like Lonely Girl, and most of Ain't Got Nobody. Yeah, I really like that one too. Though Go Away was another one where initially I'm like, oh, I hear another voice. That's different. I don't know if I like that. <laughs> but then I really just kind of sit back and, you know, think about it and dwell on it. And I'm like, no, this this is pretty good. I really like this. You know what's so funny is listening to this album inspired me to do something that, like, I didn't think I'd ever do. But it's like, you know, it'd be really cool. A, a while back we were talking about, like, you know, every once in a while there's, like, one or two really great, like, Weezer songs on a not-so-great album or, like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, something kind of like that. So I thought yeah. it'd be fun if I took the all those songs that I could think of that remind me of old Weezer, like, and then take some B sides and then just just songs I like and make like my own Weezer album. Like, yeah. I wish I wish this had been the fourth album, like after the Green album. My my rules were it had to be after the Green album. I could basically pick any song I wanted, and including like old B sides from Pinkerton or the Blue album, and yeah. make my own album. So I did that. Awesome. And I got and, and I got like a bunch of B side stuff. I could send this to you on Facebook, and then if people are interested <laughs> on my Weezer playlist, yeah. I could put it in the uh, uh, in the man, blog post. Holy shit! This is music to my ears because I do this all the time, not yeah. just with Weezer, but with yeah. Wow, uh, I'm totally. Like, this is the album I wish that I could have gotten. <laughs> yeah, no, and because with so much of like post Green Weezer, it's like uh, there if that could have been an EP, or uh, if you took the best songs off those two albums, put them together, we'd have something, you know. Like, now I'm not saying my my playlist is perfect, and there's probably some choices on it that don't even make sense. Like I was like, well, my album needs a big single. What's a song from a previous Weezer album that I think was a good single, but I didn't really like the album? So like I had like Keep Fishing is like well, that's got to be my buddy Holly, even though <laughs> so like that was it, a single. You you're know, thinking but, about it like that, like as as an executive trying to like make this record move. Kind of- and it's funny when compiling my own Weezer mix, and I'll share some of the stuff on my, my mix in a bit, um, how many songs I actually picked from the most recent one. Because even though I did like the most recent one, there were certain songs that reminded me more of the older Weezer than you know, than, than, than other ones I liked. Like I put like Lonely Girl and Ain't Got Nobody mm. on my own mix. Yeah. And even though I really like Cleopatra, I can't imagine that song being like on an older album. Right. So I didn't include it. But I have like B-sides and stuff from Pinkerton. I didn't pick anything from Make Believe. I couldn't find <laughs> one track from Make Believe that I liked. Yeah. And the same went for... Uh, I feel like that Ratitude. Right. There was one that I had almost, but then it was like... There's something about Ratitude that feels really 
kind of emo and overproduced <laughs> and it just didn't yeah. fit with everything else i was going for yeah pretty much every like even everything will be all right in the end which doesn't sound terrible or anything that it's kind of, it's kind of compressed like there's a lot of overproduction in weezer these days so, so i'm not saying my 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 weezer mix is perfect but if anyone's <laughs> curious about my weezer mix was it's uh i i opened mine as well with thank god nobody mm-hmm. i had you gave your love to me softly, which I believe was a Pinkerton B-side, and then I had uh, Keep Fishing on there, Lonely yeah. Girl, Suzanne, bl- another yeah, blue, blue album, album track, yeah. uh, Go Away, Unspoken, which I think was from her, yeah, but Hurley. I actually really liked that song. Mikkel and Carly, which is also which is on Death to False Metal, but I think there was also it's a blue album. It's, B-side an, it's an older re- cut, yeah. and they remade it, and then I had Tragic Girl, which is a Pinkerton song. And Dreamin', which is from the Red Album, even though there's a really shitty middle part of that song that has... Uh, In the meadow. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. The other guy, Brian. I can't believe I can't remember, yeah, Brian, like, his, he sings, and yeah. he sucks, you know, he shouldn't ever do that. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know if I mean, he's sucks. a great guitar player, but yeah. I don't like his... I just, it didn't work for me. I, I feel you. Hey, do you, so what is your... Um, Maybe just off the top of your head, I don't know if you have it written down. What is your ranking of Weezer albums? Like, besides the first two, because I assume we both put the first two as the top two. What is is your ranking after that? I mean, I go Green Album. Yeah. And then, oh my god, I didn't really really thought about it. It's really hard right after that. It's okay. I mean... (laughs) Well, you you go. Let me... me, How about you? If you have one, do you? Do you have an order? Yeah. I I, kind of... I think so. Just because we were... I don't know, discussing yeah. track lists and stuff. I would yeah. say, uh, yeah, I would say green at, at number three. That I think that's the most tasteful <laughs> and best one they've done uh, after Pinkerton. And uh, I, I'd say the new one I'd put under green, but I, I'd say it's a solid fourth for sure. Um, then I'd put Death to False Metal because it has some, even though it might not count as an album per se, because it's kind of like you know taking old stuff and reworking it and whatnot. Uh, I just think that it's it kind of gets away with some of its goofier moments because it's such like an odds and ends kind of thing that I don't know. It, it mostly works for me. Uh, then Hurley, which I is kind of a iffy album, but it's like some of the cuts that you put on there, like, I don't know, ruling me and stuff like that. Like, I think it has enough songs to kind of save it. Then red, which is half good and half really terrible and awful. I admire and, the experimentation on that, but there's a lot of bad stuff on there too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and then uh, make believe, Ratitude, and Maladroit is my least favorite. I I definitely put make believe at the bottom for me because even though there's songs I like on make believe, yeah. like sort of, I don't know. It just is at that point where it, Weezer just felt so far. I think it's it's mostly Beverly Hills felt so far from the yeah. band that I liked. Like they felt like mainstream or i don't know it's just <laughs> no i know what you mean like I, I i feel the same way it's not a good album which is a shame because like he's you can tell he's kind of going in that direction of like oh I'm, I'm gonna write these huge soaring melodies but it's really just like long phrasing instead of actually like soaring melody and then like i don't know it just sounds like really whiny as as opposed to Pinkerton, where he's like spilling his guts, make believe it's just like, oh, here's my feelings. Like I don't know. <laughs> so why do you think Maladroit? Like what what makes that fall so far to the bottom for you? 
It's a couple things. For one thing, I think it's the first time where his songwriting was really just lazy. If you notice on the album, uh, even though Green kind of had a very simple structure of like, oh, verse, chorus, here's a solo, that's the voice melody, it's still like really tightly written and really like thought out. Whereas Make Believe is just like really choppy melody, like, cheese smells so good on a burnt. And then they'll just repeat the same part of a song twice to fill out space and they'll just put in like little meadly, 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 you know, kind of rock fills into you know pat it all out and then it's just sonically it's just it sounds really abrasive when it shouldn't like it doesn't the guitars just sound really kind of sludgy and and weird and yeah i just think the songwriting is not there you know and if if the idea of it was oh let's write like a big dumb rock album then i don't even think it succeeds at that because like something like hash pipe that's kind of like a big dumb rock song but it's good you know like if you're gonna do that kind of thing you have to write a song i just don't feel like it's songs on this album it's just kind of like riffs with you know dumb lyrics attached to it i mean i said i like keep fishing it was even on my mix but i i don't think there's any other songs on that album i like and yeah i feel like dope nose really stands out as just the dumbification, if that's a word. (laughs) (laughs) let's let's say it is of of weezer that's like the transition and yeah. it's funny because, you know, there's that story that, oh, he wrote it at the same time he wrote Hashpipe. Well, it's like, then why didn't it end up on the Green Album? Why did it wait so long? It just goes back to that thing, like, does Rivers Cuomo know which ones, which of his songs are good? Like, it's weird <laughs> how they how that, how that happens. But um, Yeah, who knows? Yeah, that one, I don't know if I'd put that one that close to the bottom for me, but it's definitely just like, it's weird because it's right after the Green Album. You figure, oh, well, they're on a roll now. Right, And then right. what happened? And I, I don't know. Moving on. It's time to join the orgy and get the shivers. Here's our review of Shivers. If you think you're not afraid of the dark, if you think you have a strong stomach, if you feel nothing can shock you, if you say you don't scare easily, if you believe you've seen everything, then prepare yourself for motion picture that takes you beyond fear, beyond your wildest nightmares, and brings you face to face with terror, beyond the power of priest or science to exercise. What are they? Raging demons from another world? Bloodthirsty creatures that must be killed? Or incarnations of absolute evil? Shivers, 1975, also known as Orgy of the Blood Parasites, also known as The Parasite Murders, also known as They Came From Within, also known as Frisians, is the directorial debut of David Cronenberg. Uh, where, do, where do we start with this one? I guess just a very basic uh, kind of sum, summary of the plot. There's not a lot, I feel like, to cover, but it was in, it's mostly set in this, uh, this kind of apartment complex in, in this place. It's, it's an island, right? Yeah. In Montreal. And it, it kind of opens with this slideshow, like, come to this island, stay at this, you know, live here. This is a great place. This is a very kind of uh, touristy kind of introduction film. Like, kind of purposefully cheesy, you know, like, yeah, the kind that you see. The kind that you'd see in the mid-70s. And then early on, I, uh, we see this guy, and he's got this woman and he's basically it looks like he's killing her and we don't know what that means yet 
um, but that's important later. I don't know if I should just go right out and spoil what's going on. I think we kind of have to. Um, so basically, there's some some doctors. I'm not sure if they're nearby or working within this uh, this complex. <laughs> the location, the setting is a little is a little sketchy for me sometimes. But anyways, somewhere on this island, there's these doctors who have created these uh, parasites, like like these big slugs. They kind of look like big bloody crawling tongues, and uh, supposedly they're supposed to replace the functions of certain organs. Like you need a kidney, you put this parasite in you and it helps. But then there's this other doctor, um, Dr. Hobbs, who is using it for a different purpose. And he wants to put these slug-like things into people and it unleashes, it kind of turns them into like sex maniacs because he wants to bring people back to their most like primal states. Does this sound does this sound correct so far? Yeah, like that's kind of. I think there's a line of dialogue that's like, yeah, it's a return to the primal state or whatever. Now, right off the bat, I was a little confused on how one of these doctors who was developing this said that it's for organs, but then this other guy brings up what to me sounds like a totally different function. Did that confuse you, or am I missing something? Or from what I can tell, uh, when you're when you, are you talking about earlier in the movie where he's talking about the parasite that will that ate the guy's bad uh, kidney? Yeah. Okay. I think that was just a, a separate conversation about a different. Okay. Um, it, it's just kind of setting up that idea of, uh, you know, parasites infecting what the it could do. Yeah. Not necessarily what it actually does. Sure. And then I believe that woman at the beginning of the film was, they're trying. He's trying to stop the uh, the, the the creature because when you, um. You know, when you have sex with someone else, it spreads. It's like an STD kind of, and it just turns more and more people into sex maniacs. And that is essentially something that uh, spreads throughout this complex. And the movie is organized in kind of a chaotic kind of order. It's not, it just jumps from character to character. Really, the only central character we have is there's um, a doctor who, uh, I guess, is the on site doctor at the complex. played by Paul Hampton. Uh, but aside from him, I mean, there's some other people you see a, a handful of times. For instance, there's this guy who's on like the DVD cover who I was like, is that Dave, David Cronenberg? Is he in the movie? There's a there's an actor who looks vaguely like David Cronenberg. It's not David Cronenberg. Like he gets infected and you kind of follow him through that, uh, the states, you know, his, his development with the uh, with the creature. But for the, for the most part, it's just cutting from character to character, seeing these slug-like things move around and infect people how did that strike you as the way to organize this film like did you appreciate that as a way um just the narrative following yeah the narrative structure like do you think you would have rather seen it kind of play forward in a more straightforward narrative where we follow a central character or did you prefer it jumping around because that was it was kind of an interesting approach i can i can see that i mean the idea that uh this sort of mini epidemic or panic, I don't know what the word is, but um, that hasn't spread beyond that complex yet. So you can uh, see the disease carry on by following all these characters running into each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's perhaps, uh, I don't know, a, a more interesting way for um, the plot to move forward rather than following one guy uh, as he goes through all of this, um, you know, crazy pandemonium. Um, and I think it's also because given what the parasite does, you know, it, it makes more sense to see all these different characters, um, 
you know, showing these symptoms. And then that way, when it finally does come down to the one guy that you're following who hasn't been affected yet, then everything is, it, it makes it even more uh, frightening that um, everybody else has been affected, you know, because up till that point, you've had other people who had um, managed to not be infected yet. So yeah, I, I think so. I think I appreciated the structure just because it immediately kind of sets this movie apart for maybe other, or just similar kinds of horror movies at the time. You know, there's a lot of, 70s are notable for a lot of exploitation films, and I've noticed a lot of people have called this an exploitation film, you know, and when I think exploitation, I think, you know, blood for the sake of blood, nudity for the sake of nudity. I mean, we probably all have our different definitions of of, uh, exploitation, but I'm curious, would you consider Rabbit just a straight exploitation film, or would you kind of put it in a different category? I would say that it's. Uh, I would say that it, much like uh, uh, how Roger Ebert in his uh, review, which I think we talked about last time. I don't even know if we made the episode or not, but Roger Ebert talked about how he saw this on a double bill with the movie Snuff, and that seeing this movie, uh, he went into it expecting it to be just like Snuff, and that he thought it was just going to be. Uh, completely thoughtless but that he was even though he wasn't completely positive about the movie he was surprised pleasantly surprised i guess that it had more thought into it and for him that uh, made it rise above the level of exploitation for me personally i can sympathize with that but i actually had a lot of problems with this movie and i would say that despite its um intent uh i would say that its intent isn't exploitive and that it's coming from a place um that isn't just using all all these images and and these plot points uh for for the sake of provoking but that the outcome ends up being uh exploitive and ends up being uh provocation without um when it needs to have more behind it that's how i uh its conclusion i came to okay so you're saying you had some problems with this film was there anything else um like Aside from that, aside from the exploitation aspect that maybe weren't really digging on? Well, yeah. I mean, the the I think the exploitation thing is, is something that... It, it's, it's, not, it's not just that one element. I think it kind of uh, affects kind of every level of film. I, I think that... I, I think it starts from the idea, um, which is that, from my interpretation, he's making... Uh, kind of a movie about the 70s and and the and i mean maybe not the 70s but uh that part of uh the 20th century um post sexual revolution you know um kind of everything that goes along with that the things that are um ostensibly freeing about that as well as the things that are uh, perhaps kind of terrifying about that and I don't think that's a bad idea for a movie. I don't think that's a bad idea for a horror movie. But I think that if his tactic um, of showing that this is... Um, his way of showing that... If you're going to make a sex revolution a horror movie, d- don't be such a dude about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like from from the opening where it shows the, the schoolgirl and, and, and the guy... Um, the, the original doctor i feel like okay so here's uh you know violence against a woman which is that's always playing with fire on on screen just because of the 
social ramifications of that I, I i'm not somebody who believes that you know art is or entertainment is something that kind of pro- I don't know. I, I I believe that you know that's something that you have to handle very carefully, and I don't think that Cronenberg's intentions uh, were bad. But I, I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, the critique here that I see that he's making, or, or the the point that I see that he's making that this the sex revolution ends up being this uh, kind of being this very frightening thing because of the anxieties and the sexual anxieties that people have ingrained in them. I think if he's going to make that point, he's only weakening his point by showing like this, all these people raping each other and, and making rape into this kind of uh, weapon of the, this horror monster, you know, like it becomes, uh, it cheapens it and it, and it, it makes it into something that uh, for me, I, I felt like the movie became kind of a, uh, affected by the very thing that it was discussing or criticizing and i uh speaking of ebert it actually kind of reminds me of uh siskel and ebert's special that they did um in like 1980 like the early 80s where they did an entire episode about how sick they were of the uh, woman in danger uh thing that, that they were that whole trope they were really sick of it at the time because it felt like every movie was uh every horror movie that was coming out was just different ways of like brutalizing um sorry brutalizing um women and uh and that was in 1980 (laughs) you know what i mean like uh i feel like uh with this movie even though its intentions were in a different place perhaps um i feel like uh i don't know that that using that um using that kind of device in a way while trying to intellectualize it it's it's very tricky it's a very tricky thing to do but and i i'm not saying that i know the right way to do it but i have a feeling that the right way to do it wouldn't be to show like a naked woman covered in blood because then you're only erupting that that feeling in the in the audience's mind and and the men and and the women because you know both sides of that kind of uh, both sides of that divide and I understand that that's what Cronenberg does he he pushes buttons and he and he provokes and he's great at doing that he's a great for doing that a lot of the time but if he's to do that with this and then to have the you know the theme that this movie ostensibly has it's just it doesn't mesh at all and it ends up being I think exploitive exploitative I don't know so to fix this movie do you think I mean, I don't know if there's a simple way to fix it, but do you think it could have worked just having it be less one-sided in terms of gender, like having like naked males that were sex crazed too? Because we don't really get that. Yeah. Do you think if we threw that in, it might work? Or do you think it'd still be too just <laughs> crazy and off the wall? Well, yeah, I actually wrote in my notes. Um, I'm for uh, what I write. I don't know. For a movie with... Uh, about this i'm sure i'm seeing a whole lot of more naked ladies than naked dudes like why are why are all the dudes clothed cronenberg uh yeah i i think that that's i i think that's a way to kind of even the playing field is to throw all those naked men in there i guess but even then it, it's it's just not the same thing because a naked man covered in blood is a very different thing than a naked woman covered in blood just because of our society and because of just kind of the patriarchal it, it's just set up in a different way so it, I can understand that as like a, 
maybe it'd be better just because you know but it still wouldn't fix the issue and you know what i mean like because the issue still just comes down to what this movie is uh what the images that it's um putting on screen and like even the the parasite itself is this very phallic looking thing so when it attacks that woman in the laundry room and something you know it's a very you never see that thing attack a man or enter a man you know it only enters the women in the movie it's i mean and and we do have a prominent like male character who is infected the david cronenberg looking guy (laughs) like i think of you know you see him bleeding and everything but the only scene I recall of him being like sex crazed is even when he's just like I think it was with his wife and he's like oh like give me a blowjob or something like that's still like right. it's still showing like him like even though he's got this disease so in power you know it's it's kind of odd that they went in that direction so I mean I didn't even th- yeah. start thinking about that until we started talking about uh, this that you know I mean I guess Cronenberg he's controversially. Um, he stirs the pot, but I think, yeah, it's, it's too much from a male point of view. And it, I think it rubs me the wrong way too. But I, it, even though this is a big part of the movie, um, maybe if we could take a minute to talk about some other aspects, not, I don't know how much more there is, but like, so this is like a low budget film, no name cast, limited resources. And I think for like an independent filmmaker, it's tough to pull off a serious movie. Um, do you think there's any aspects of it that really worked or was it just did the whole thing kind of feel cheesy or like tonally? How did you feel? Oh, I don't think the tone, um, you mean just like, I just, did this movie feel campy or do you think it felt more professional? Like I, cause it's just interesting to see, you know, a filmmaker start on this lower level. And like, personally, I thought that from a production standpoint with limited cast, limited budget, I think, there was definitely some some skill shown here and like how he uses the camera um some of the cinematography some of the sight gags whether or not you like them or not like i mean this this creature is pretty goofy to begin with but there was that there was that bit i kind of liked it where there is the person with the umbrella and uh you see the david cronenberg looking fellow (laughs) which is what i'm going to continue to call him (laughs) he kind of like spits one out and it falls on a lady's umbrella And I thought that yeah. was a good gag. And it almost made me wish that this movie was like a comedy or something at times. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I understand. I, I feel you there. Cause I, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think the, just from a, a completely neutral, just aesthetic point of view. Yeah. I, I, I do think that Cronenberg is just kind of, you can kind of see here that this is a movie directed by a director <laughs> and, and not, you know, uh, a guy who's burning out a quick movie that's gonna play at the drive-in in the in Toronto or wherever the Canadian horror movies are. Um, yeah, no, th- there are those great shots, and uh, the music I think is actually very unnerving, very creepy. Some there's some great stings of you know just perfectly placed and and really nice. Um, Supervised by Ivan Reitman, music supervisor. Ivan Reitman, music supervisor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, uh, Of course, Ivan Reitman did produce this movie. I don't know. Just all Canadian people know each other. (laughs) Yeah, I think all Canadian people just know Ivan Reitman. I think he's just. It is weird reading about this film, though. How like how much of a big deal it was in Canada, like in terms of controversy. Because I mean. If that movie had come out over here, it's just another kind of throwaway 
you know, weird thriller horror movie. But over there, I guess there just wasn't that, that, that stuff wasn't going on. And I was reading stuff about how, like, you know, all sorts of uh, people are coming after him, critics, all sorts of people. And then, like, he got kicked out of his, like, apartment because there was yeah. some sort of morality clause. Yeah. And then, like, I thought I read, I, I don't know if I if I read this correctly, that it, at the time it was, like, one of the most successful or, or up there, like, movies over there. Cause, oh, is that or, true? Or something in terms of success. Or, wow. That's really surprising, just... actually. Because <laughs> I would not imagine, like, not anywhere, but, like, Canada. They're all so polite. <laughs> I guess they didn't have a big uh, scene over there. I think I saw, like, a roundtable discussion once with David Cronenberg, John Landis, and John Carpenter. And this is online. It's a very interesting conversation. And I feel like he mentioned stuff about being like kicked out of Canada and stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> practically, like he could have been. Yeah, I don't know what else to add about this movie. I mean, the last half um, of the movie, after it kind of breaks out of the format of moving randomly from person to person, is basically just focusing on the uh, the, the doctor character that I was talking about earlier that Paul Hampton plays. And at that p- point, it's kind of just like a zombie movie. And I don't know, I thought that, kind of that portion of the movie was mildly entertaining um how did you feel about the end just whatever i mean did anything about that stand out to you um yeah well there's that shot of him trying to escape he he runs from the pool and then he finds himself surrounded and um that's another uh way that i think this movie is clearly directed by a director is that he, he doesn't shoot it like him running and then a shot of people coming him running then a shot of people. it's just this kind of unbroken shot of uh just him running from side to side in the screen kind of panicky but then just the slowly approaching mob of people like just uh the, the different movements on screen and then the you know position of the camera it, it was definitely effective but yeah, that last, I think it's one of the last shots of Paul Hampton in the pool and everyone just kind of crowding on him. I thought that was a really interesting shot and almost made me like wish at some point, like, I wonder if this movie would have been better if David Cronenberg had just done a straight like zombie movie in an apartment complex instead of trying to dig into some weird psychoanalytical premise that kind of makes me uncomfortable. Right. I mean, it's moments <laughs> like that where... Where I don't know, like there's there's stuff I really like about this movie, but there's also things that really just make me feel uncomfortable and just uh, I don't know. I yeah, it's yeah, a, no. it's a very weird okay. experience. At the end of the day, like, would you recommend this to uh, someone who's seen Cronenberg movies? Or let's just say, would you recommend this? Let's just put it at that to start with. You know, honestly, I'm still I'm gonna have to say no because um, I, I want to make it clear that like I I have no problem being made uncomfortable. That's one of my favorite things uh, in a movie and especially a horror movie is to for it to kind of get under my skin. It's just that I you know I'm no prude. It's just <laughs> basically, but it's just that I I don't you know this particular way. I think there it, it's. Um, it, it does become exploitation uh, for me. And then, you know, that kind of infects every part of the movie for me. And even just on its own, you know, this is with this kind of thing, um, 
if you're if you're gonna have that thesis statement for your movie and it's in it informs every scene whether it's explicitly or implicitly it, it is kind of part of the dna of every scene then if that's no good then that sinks the whole movie so i would say definitely no i would not recommend this i think i'm kind of in the same boat i do admire a lot of the uh, things going on from a technical standpoint but I think just thematically and the whole the soul of the movie is just it's 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 kind of mean spirit. It's just it's just something that I don't uh, it, it makes me uncomfortable. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, if, if you want to check out Cronenberg movies, there's there's some other ones that I think are probably more worth your time. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's 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 tough too because I, I there's parts of it I, I like, but I think overall it's just I don't know. It doesn't make me. It doesn't make me feel good. So you know, because we were talking about Cronenberg's, uh, what is a Cronenberg movie that you would recommend that you do that I would there? recommend? Ugh, I'm trying to think of something like unique to say that's not The Fly. <laughs> um, I'll go. I'll go with The Dead Zone. Oh, okay. That's a great one, Christopher Walken. Great adaptation of the Stephen King book, creatively done. I, I, I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm going off some blurry <laughs> memories. But that's always been one of my favorites. Do you have one? Yeah, I'm gonna go with the fly. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I would say the fly is my favorite thing he's done. But there, I, he's actually one where I have, I still have to see a lot of stuff. I haven't seen him yet, so. Uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen Scanners. Yeah. And that's can't be fun. Um, I don't know how how good it is after you've seen the head blow up. I think it's like a that's pop- definitely the highlight of the movie. It's like a popular gif now. I see a lot. Like online. Yeah, and then of course there's Videodrome, uh, which I admire from a technical standpoint, but story-wise, I don't know, I think it's kind of stupid. <laughs> but, you know, neat, neat effects, so there, there's a, there's there's some something for you to check out. I was just going to move move ahead. I was going to say, who knows, you know, maybe someday we'll get another Cronenberg we'll movie and we can delve in further. But until then, we'll move on to the segment we call John and Michael Recommend. Of course, this is the segment where we take movies we've seen, uh, preferably on streaming, but just whatever, and recommend them. I'll go first. Uh, since I've been doing Shocktober all month, all, all however many days it's been. So I've been doing Shocktober all month, and there's already been a couple movies that have really stood out. And I think the biggest surprise so far was a movie that I watched. I knew nothing about it going into it. It was called The Other. It's from 1972. It was directed by um, Robert Mulligan, who directed To Kill a Mockingbird. And this is based off a book by Thomas Tryon, and he also wrote the screenplay. And it's this um, movie set in the 30s. It's in a farmhouse, summertime. And there's these two kids called Niles and Holland, and they're always just kind of playing around the farm. Niles is more soft-spoken. Holland is the troublemaker, yet Niles always seems to get caught you know, with Holland's pranks, because he looks just like him. But then, at some point, like, just bizarre stuff starts happening on the farm. Like, people start dying in mysterious ways. There's this one scene that's terrifying, where there's some other kid who's in a barn, and he's going to jump into some hay, and there's a pitchfork in there. Uh. And it cuts away, but it's, like, the most disturbing thing ever. Nobody is safe in this movie. And there's some very dark twists and turns. And there's, there's, there's some big twists that aren't hard to figure out but 
Um, I still enjoy that, even even figuring that out. Uh, Roger Ebert wrote some some very nice stuff about about this film that I saw on Wikipedia. Um, I'll just read what he what he said because I really like it. He says uh, the other has been criticized in some quarters because Mulligan made it too beautiful. They say and too nostalgic. Not at all. His colors are rich, or rich, excuse me, and deep and dark, chocolatey browns and bloody reds. They aren't beautiful but perverse and menacing. And the farm isn't seen with a warm nostalgia, but with the remembrance that it is haunted. And that's, I think that's a good point. It's this movie that kind of looks like this idyllic setting, but then really taps into the dark side of that. And almost the dark side of being young, like being a kid and all the scary things when you're a kid. So I saw that movie on YouTube, actually. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't know if it's even on DVD. I think it is actually, um, but you know, I never heard anything about it, but I really loved it. It was very, very disturbing, very scary. And uh, it has a very small uh, appearance by John Ritter. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah, so the other, check it out. Michael, what do you have to recommend? Oh, wow. Uh, I really need to check that one out. Um, I uh, was under the impression that this was um, streaming, but I just realized that I actually ha- this was downloaded onto my computer, so I it was I did not actually watch it on Netflix. Um, but anyway, it, it's pretty easily available if you uh, want to check it out. It's called Sound of My Voice, and it's a movie directed by Zal uh, Batmanglish, and I believe that's the pronunciation and. Uh, Written by Britt Marling and uh, Zal uh, Batmanglish, um, it's a it can be described as a thriller, um, but it, it's basically um, a movie about this uh, substitute teacher slash uh, documentary filmmaker or aspiring document documentary filmmaker and his girlfriend. Uh, there are a couple that are uh, trying to make a documentary about this small cult that is growing in um, g- growing in LA, and that uh, the leader of this cult, who's played by uh, Britt Marling, is this woman named Maggie, who claims that she is uh, a time traveler from the year 2054, and basically. Uh, the idea behind this little cult, obviously they don't think of it as a cult, uh, they, uh, is that she is from the future and she's trying to uh, uh, take these people and prepare them for the future and that she's going to enlighten them and, and take them into her her land. And she, she talks about the future uh, as, um, the, it, as um, this kind of... Uh, ravaged by war and 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 death and and hunger uh kind of place and uh she's basically returning back in time to find followers uh that are the the, basically the chosen ones to and to prepare those people for uh the future so that you know they can survive and and you know she's just this very warm and inviting presence and and her kind of disciples are, are just in love with her and in love with this idea and uh, the the filmmaker and his girlfriend pretend to be uh, interested in the cults so that they can make this documentary, but um, without spoiling it because this is a, a movie that um, really just uh, it's 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 best to see the plot unfold on screen I guess. Um, 
they soon find themselves kind of in over their heads uh, to, to use the most generic uh, description possible. Um, and it, it was just, it's just a really interesting story told in a very interesting way. Um, it, it, it's not quite as good as this, but uh, I was first reminded of Upstream Color, which is one of my favorite movies of the last few years. Um, just in kind of, uh, it's a, it's sci-fi, but it's sci-fi in in kind of the broadest sense. You know, it's um, and the way that it's told kind of reminds me of Upstream Color. Um, yeah, it, it's. Um, I don't know, it's a really compelling movie, and it, and it stuck with me for, for days after watching it, so I highly recommend Sound of My Voice. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I feel like Britt Marling has done a handful of really interesting indie projects, a handful of which she, like, writes, too, or co-writes, and I haven't seen any of them. Uh, but I liked her in Arbitrage with Richard Gere, so I've always been <laughs> I've always wanted to check out um, more of her projects. I know, too, this is kind of unrelated, but the director is the brother of uh, the keyboardist from Vampire Weekend. <laughs> yeah. I, I, do you know how to pronounce his last name? Because I feel really bad that I... Um, I don't... I, I, I think Bat, Batmanglish Batman is my guess. Okay, yeah. Um, does this have any Vampire Weekend music in it? <laughs> it has a Hot Chip song at the end, but no, no, nice. no Vampire Weekend. And I know one of the producers was Hans Ritter. Is that uh, in relation to John Ritter? Just, <laughs> to, any connection to these two? <laughs> to keep the theme going. <laughs> Uh, I hope so. Uh, no, I haven't even heard of this. I mean, I, I they work together on the East as well, which I've heard of at least, but <laughs> I didn't see that either. But uh, yeah, yeah, this is totally um, something that is unknown to me. So I definitely want to check this out, and I can find it somewhere. <laughs> somewhere it's out there, maybe streaming, maybe. Okay, so this is normally the portion of the show where we get out the Netflix uh, randomizer, but since I've been going through so many movies through uh, for Shocktober and just, you know, got to watch basically a movie every day. Instead of piling another one on, uh, I thought it'd be fun if we picked another random selection from the Shocktober list. I'm going to keep that a surprise for now. So, you know, everyone's gonna definitely going to check it out because they don't, they don't know what it is. You know, if, if we told them what it is, they'd be like, oh, well, I can just read about that review somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. That, that's how you get them. I'm sure it will be something... Uh, surprising. I'll just say that. <laughs> you can uh, you can check us out on mildlyplease.com. You can find us on iTunes, Tumblr. Uh, any last words, Michael? Before you kill me. <laughs> before I kill you. Before I kill Michael. Watch scary movies. <laughs> so you're gonna you're like they're walking you. They, they put the electric chair. <laughs> Do you have any last words? Watch scary movies. <laughs> as, as I'm dangling off of the bridge and he's about to drop me off. Any last words, Michael? Watch scary movies. And then I throw a copy of The Ring at him, and that's how I escape. I can't think of <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Go away, go away.